Good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. Direct your attention to the Word of God, to Hebrews. We are looking at the book of Hebrews this fall and again next spring under the general title of So Great Salvation. Here now, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'll divide the text this way. There in verse 8, it says, We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. There's something we don't see, something that's not apparent to us, something that we cannot grasp by our physical senses, and something that's kind of hard to understand and to be aware of. We don't see it. But then it continues in verse 8. Nine, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Something we don't see or something we do see? What we don't see is the way God's created order has been arrayed and exists, and then the awful thing that's happened to that created order in the fall into sin, and then God's work in eternal redemption whereby He intends to restore and redeem that which has fallen and that which is lost and redeem and restore it to its original glory and beyond. It's hard for us to see that. We have to hear the word of the Lord with respect to that. The great majority of the population is willfully and deliberately ignorant of that. We just don't see it. But there's something we do see. And what we do see is Christ, Jesus. Jesus, as he comes to us in the gospel, as we understand something of his glory and his honor which we had with the Father before the world existed and that which he laid aside to come to earth and to take up humanity. Complete, perfect 
humanity, that which God had created in the beginning. In the image of God, Jesus comes, the exact express image we found out in chapter 1. Very God himself coming in very human flesh. We see him. That's the gospel. The gospel is Bethlehem. Jesus came as a babe in humanity with human parentage and lineage born into a circumstance, that very circumstance in which we're born in. Humanity, with all of its limitations, finitude, and depravity all around. We see that. We see it in the gospel. We see how he had glory in his deity and humanity as he worked miracles and performed all the wonders that we saw in the last week that we studied in the previous verses. We see that. We see him on the Mount of Transfiguration there with the Shekinah glory of God radiating his very person. We see that. We hear him on the Mount of Transfiguration talking about his exodus. Talking with Moses about an exodus. Isn't that interesting? The exodus means his great moving out and coming out. His death. His decease. We see that. And in the gospel, we see him going to Gethsemane and there beginning to bear the sins of the world and the guilt and the awful shame pressing in upon him and pressing him in like the word Gethsemane means, the, the pressing of the olives so that there is intense suffering. And he said, I'm sorrowful to death. And as the sins of the world are laid upon him, we see him go to trial. We see him go to crucifixion, to his suffering. We see him go to his death on a cross, an awful, awful death of suffering. This passage speaks of suffering. That's what he was suffering. He was suffering not for his own sins, but for ours. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. It's with his stripe that we are healed, substituting in our place. We see that. That's the gospel. We see him laid in the tomb and there resting from his labors, for it was finished. His work and his accomplishment. We see him brought forth in power from the grave, in resurrection. We see him exalted and high and lifted up ascended and enthroned. We see that. We see the gospel. It's the gospel that we need to believe. What we don't see is what is set out there in those first few verses. It says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The world to come is the, the age viewed from the Old Testament perspective. The world to come is the world of the Savior, the world of the Messiah, the world of Christ, the world of the coming of the redemption, the coming of the hope of Israel. That's the world to come. And of course, it extends through the whole time of Jesus' life and ministry and the apostolic age and the centuries since and on through eternity. The Bible always divides time and eternity with one great crucible, and that's the coming of Christ. All of that's the former things. This is the latter things, the things to come. And from the Old Testament perspective, it's interesting he says, 
It has been testified somewhere. <laughs> I guarantee you the writer knew exactly where it was testified. He's quoting Psalm 108. And, and in that Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 8. Uh, and in that Psalm, in the middle of it, is this passage. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And if he's put in subjection under his feet, there's nothing left without his control. It's the word panta. It's used over and over and over in the Greek. And it means all things considered, everything you can think of in heaven and in earth, material and immaterial, things past, things present. Everything is under the dominion of Christ. What is encapsulated in this passage? This is a kind of a cryptic oracle in a lot of ways. And we know for sure it talks at least about man, human, mankind. It talks about Adam and the creation of Adam. And God had created man in his image and given man the dominion over the creation. Genesis 1 verse 26. God made man to rule over the creation, all things. And what happened? The thing that ruins me, sin. That's what ruined my father, Adam. Sin ruined it. That rebellion, that selfishness, that willingness to believe a lie, that total lapse in faith, that complete and willful disobedience, that walking away from the Lord, that turning to the word of the deceiver and the destroyer and the murderer and the liar from the beginning, Satan himself. There's a forfeiture. There's a loss. And Adam lost it. And he not only lost it for himself, he lost it for everyone that was to descend from him. That's what we mean about being born in sin. When Adam sinned, I sinned because I was in Adam. Adam was created. I was not created. I was procreated. There's a difference. We see a little baby say, oh, precious creation of the Lord. No, a baby's not a creation. A procreation. That little baby is Adamic in Adam, in every single scintilla of his physical being. But here's God's redemptive plan. There's going to be a new Adam, a second Adam. And that second Adam is Christ, the second person of the triune God, Existing with the Father, coterminous, co-equal with the Father from all eternity, the eternal Son, is going to, in the marvelous counsels of the mysteries of the covenant of grace, he's going to take up Adam's condition. God himself is going to descend into Adam's flesh and come in Adam's race. And for a little while, all of that superiority to the angels that we spoke of in chapter 1, he's going to lay all of that aside. And for a little while, 
he's going to be made lower than the angels. We don't have time this morning, but let me just suggest it to you. And you, you follow the thread through the scripture. It's a thin thread, but it's there. This is one of those things we don't see. In the fall, the creation, the dominion that God had given to Adam since it was forfeited, went to Satan and his angels. And that's why we have the territorial division of the entire globe under satanic influence, principalities, powers. That's where we have spiritual warfare. That's where we have Satan who's called the God of this world. That dominion was lost in Adam. But that dominion is recovered in the second Adam in Christ. We don't see that. That's hard to even understand and imagine. But the scriptures speak of it in both testaments of the angelic and the demonic, the fallen angels, having a dominion and an influence over this world, blinding the eyes of those that believe not the gospel, sowing seeds of discord, making murder and the culture of murder becoming the ruling and reigning and dominant influence of mighty kingdoms and powers. If we had time to do a little world history lesson, it is stunning to think how many people have been slaughtered in the advancement of kings and potentates and dictators all across human history and certainly in the 20th century where millions and millions and millions of people have been murdered in the name of dominion. It's all awry. It is all messed up. It is in a state of depravity. It's in a state of ruin. God's creation. That which he looked at and said it's good. It's got to be recovered. It's has to be redeemed for God so loved the world he loved his creation he loved humanity he is not going to let humanity go into perdition for all eternity he's going to save the race save rescue the species and he's going to do it through his son becoming one of the species. And that's what the balance of chapter 2 is going to talk about is the incarnation. As it's alluded to here in this cryptic oracle in the 8th Psalm, it'll be expanded as we go along through many scriptures to say that God came in the flesh in order that he might redeem the flesh and restore it. And so that's what we see. We see not everything subjected to Christ now. That's because the work of redemption has been completed in Christ, but it's not been completed in humanity. Christ has died. He has made the way. He's the trailblazer. He's the founder. He's the file leader. The picture in, in that particular phraseology in our text there in that last verse is that there's a new line of people. I stood in line at a music festival Friday afternoon late and I didn't know I was going to have to and I got there and all of a sudden there's a big line formed at the beginning to get in the gate and I kept thinking well I love this music I just don't know if I love it this much but I was patient it was a beautiful day and I stood in line for about a half hour and finally got through the gate and got into the music festival 
But there, there's a line, and the line of people has someone at the head of it, and it's Jesus Christ, the new Adam, the second Adam, the human being that brings redemption to all of his fellows, all of his brothers and sisters. The Bible talks about Jesus bringing many sons to glory, and it's his people. It's those that are called the heirs of salvation in chapter 1. They're called many sons in this chapter. They're called the inheritance. They're called the elect. They're called the church, the bride of Christ. There's a people. God has a people. And he has lined them up on a narrow road going through a constricted, a straight gate into eternal glory. And the person that leads that file is Jesus Christ, the new man. And if you're in Christ, then you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So we do see this. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's his humiliation in his incarnation, namely Jesus. Just so you won't forget who we're talking about. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that he by the grace of God might taste death or he might experience death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, this is talking of God, and it's interesting, it describes God in a, in a couple of ways here. It says, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. All things exist. In other words, God is the original created cause of all things, but he's the ultimate of all things. It's all things are for him. He is all in all. And it says that the one that did that God the Father himself should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation, the fire leader, the trailblazer, the founder. Now this passage is going to turn as we come next week and we're going to begin to talk about the details and the particulars of the incarnation of Christ and then we'll move quickly into showing how Christ is not only superior to the angels, even though he's made for a while lower than the angels for the purpose of entering into humanity to redeem humanity, but he goes on to be one of them in so much as he is now the true and perfect and eternal high priest of his people. Not just the trailblazer, the file leader, the founder, the builder of the house, but he is the priest of the house. And this whole book focuses incredibly finely and minutely upon Christ and his work as a priest. A priest does two things. A priest makes atonement, makes sacrifice for sin. And we're going to see all in which Christ's sacrifice is so superior to that which was emblematic and prophetic. A type, the old high priest in Israel. The other thing the priest does is he makes intercession for his people. He enters into the presence of God and intercedes 
for his people. And we'll see the superiority of Christ in that aspect of his priesthood in his intercession. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is able to save us to the uttermost when we come to God through him. And that I will suggest to you as I close is the only way you will ever come to God. If you've studied world religions, you know that humanity has spent a lot of time talking about God. There's a lot of theism in mankind's philosophical and thinking. There's a lot of God talk across great world religions and everything that's in the cracks between them, in the gaps. But there's no way to the true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, there's no other way. Not through some prophet, not through some religion, not through some temple, not through some process. No way to come to the living, true God, the saving God, the merciful God, the creator God, the righteous and holy judge of all the earth than through Jesus Christ. You've got to follow his trail. You need to be in his file. You need to be walking in his path. You need to be coming by way of Christ to God. And if you're not, I urge you today to give serious consideration of what path are you walking? Who is your file leader? Who is your trailblazer? What trail are you on? Is it wide? Is it comfortable? Do you look around and feel pretty good because most everybody's about where you are? And as you think about it, you're probably better off than about half of them. You're above average. Or is it narrow? Is it steep? Is it the way of sacrifice and the way of suffering? Is it the way of peace and a clear conscience and a ready spirit to obey your trail boss, your leader, your file leader, Jesus Christ? The invitations of the Bible are manifold. Come. Come if you're hungry especially if you're hungry, take the bread of life. Come if you're thirsty, drink the water of life. Come if you're weary and you need rest to your souls. Come and come today, don't wait. You know, you can only come to the Father through the Son when the Spirit calls. And if He's calling today, don't harden your heart. Don't make an excuse. Don't put it off because you don't know if you'll get the call again. You don't know if you'll live to see it. You don't know if the Spirit will come back around and offer you another invitation or not. The Bible says the Spirit blows where He lists. He, he does that which He sovereignly pleases. So when you hear the Spirit call, you say yes. You believe. You come. And you come through Christ and Christ alone. 
to the God that your heart longs for, but your sinful spirit runs from. Your fearful, sinful, torn up, warped soul recoils from the holiness and the justice of God. And there's a sense in which you know you can't come to Him. You ought not to because you're deserving of His wrath and punishment for your sin. But then you do what the text says. You see Jesus. You see Jesus having taken care of your sin, having died for it, atoned. You see Jesus calling you. You see Jesus walking ahead. And you hear his voice ever so sweetly in your soul. Come, follow me, follow me.